welcome back to Opera Off Stage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we are talking all about opera scandals and symphony scandals, actually. Just some very funny and strange events from history that have hit the headlines. Yeah, we got a little bit of like dirt on the Met, which, you know, these days is not very no surprise. hard to find. Yeah, we got some <laughs> some funny opera singers. We have you know, some some orchestral shenanigans, and we have some cases of the audacity of some crazy audiences. So we're coming to you this week with a fun little, you know, little little gossip in the opera world. But before we get into that, we we do need to talk about the winner of our sexy instrument challenge, our March Madness, our our bracket. Jesse, would you like to tell them who the winner was? You know, so many instruments put up a good fight. Uh, but the the sexiest instrument in the orchestra is the cello, which I think a lot of us knew was coming. Jesse and I were were laughing because when we decided we wanted to do a little March Madness bracket, we were like, who do you think's going to win? And we were taking bets, but then we like literally discovered or not discovered. We like decided on the entire lineup and we knew the cello was going to win. It's just it's the way these things go, you know, <laughs> you know, there's something about the cello. There's something about the way a cello is played. Oh, she's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> it was so funny, though, because you guys, you guys were very passionate about this. So passionate. We, we had people asking us to define our terms. What did we mean by sexy? We had, we had some ardent defenders of the French horn. People were devastated by the French horn's loss, I believe, to the violin early on. Man, we really heard it from those French horn lovers. We heard it from the tuba lovers who were absolutely destroyed. Were they destroyed by the cellos? I think so. I think so. The tuba was up against some string instrument, and I'm so sorry, but they didn't stand a chance. <laughs> the The brass struggled. The brass, the brass was out early. Yeah, and I would have said like maybe the best chance they had was probably going to be French horn or uh, or probably trumpet. Sorry, tuba. <laughs> <laughs> no love for the trombone. I'm still scarred, though, by the first time I watched someone play a solo piece on French horn and then just dump their spit directly onto our stage. That was shocking. For us <laughs> for us singers, our, us normie singers, we had no idea that was coming. I don't know. I just assumed there would be something there to catch it and they wouldn't have dumped it directly on the stage. You live and you learn, Jesse. Sorry, French horn. But that was so much fun with you guys. We're hoping to do more of those brackets. They're a really time and you guys are so passionate about it so if you have any uh bracket ideas be sure to send them to us because we had a great time watching you guys vote and watching you guys tell us your thoughts yeah let us know if you guys want us to do more of these brackets throughout the year because um we just got so many dms about every round that we were like oh wow people are like genuinely into this this is so fun and we loved hearing your guys's passionate defenses for your for your different instruments was it was i felt so inspired i gotta learn the french horn personally (laughs) i'm hoping to do uh best classical breakup song (gasps) for the next one all right great we'll see you guys in april (laughs) (laughs) but we've also got some announcements before we jump into our stories first up we have a jackbox party this sunday march 28th at 5 pacific and eight eastern we're just gonna do the one this weekend we ended up having a bit of a fuller schedule this month than we thought we would so bear with us we're gonna try and keep them doubled from here on out but 
please come and join us at the Jackbox party. They are so much fun. It's very easy. The games are very intuitive. And we always, always have a really great time. And we love getting to meet you guys and and actually get to talk to you because we turn on our cameras and we chat for a little bit as well. It's so much fun. We couldn't eat like we could hype the Jackbox parties to the nth degree and it still wouldn't even capture how fun these are. It's a great chance to just like have some community time, play some silly games. We usually like end the night by like either watching some funny music videos or like sharing memes. Like it's a good old time. It's a it's a fun hangout. Oh, and boy, do we have some videos this week to share at the watch <laughs> at the party. Let's teaser. just say I found a a 1980s musical and it is a bop and the strangest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Let me just tell you that this musical has absolutely no right to be as absolute fire as it is. So we can't wait. to share that with you also we have been putting out more content on our tiktok so if you guys aren't already following us you should definitely check us out on tiktok we're at opera off stage and if you haven't joined tiktok hun what are you doing like get on there asap i mean your productivity will be shot but like (laughs) go for the amazing content okay so first up we've got a kind of modern scandal and by modern i mean 2017 from the met Which I guess at this point is really no surprise. We could title a whole series just called Who's the Met Not Paying Now? In 2017, they were doing a production of The Tales of Hoffman. They had six women who were playing Venetian prostitutes. Which, once again, not really a problem. (laughs) Half of opera is filled with prostitutes. They make compelling characters. (laughs) However, the Met decided that they were having budget issues. Because the Met always has budget issues. And instead of working that out by, you know, figuring out maybe how to pare down sets or maybe doing less performances or, you know, really reworking the way they do their financials and making sure that the people who make the Met run still get paid, they decided they would take it out on the women playing the Venetian prostitutes. Awesome. So it's a little complicated because of how these articles are worded, exactly how this happened, but I will read you exactly what is said in the news articles about this thing. So six of the women are paid... $448 per show to appear nearly nude in half of the nine performances. They were in thongs and pasties. But we're only getting $235 to wear a little more clothing, a bra and I believe some kind of pants, for the remaining shows. Now, initially when I read this, I thought they were saying that some of the women were going to be topless and some of the women weren't comfortable with it. But now that I've reread it, I'm actually pretty sure that they asked them to be more clothed and then paid them less for it. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's insane to me. They're like, um, you're not wearing less clothes, so we're going to pay you, oh, uh, about half of what we were paying you. But also, you don't get a choice. Like, you can't stay in the, the pasties and thong to get paid more, even if you want to. Okay, but let, let me ask you this. It, uh, why, why was there the change in costume? Does it say? No. And that's the thing. I don't need, it, it doesn't even clarify why they were going to to do that for it probably was like a an audience thing a donor thing they were like hmm, maybe we shouldn't have these like literally naked women on stage so uh let's maybe give them a little something more to wear they half and half it there was one performer who did apparently decide to wear a bra the whole time and just take the pay cut did the rest of them leave no 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 i'm saying like there's only one person who decided not to wear the pasties for any of the performances oh oh oh, oh. that's wild uh, it's just well, here's the thing. It gets worse. 
No, oh, of course. Because originally it does. they weren't even going to pay them two hundred thirty-five. They wanted to pay them only a hundred and twenty-eight dollars to wear the lingerie costumes, the one you know, the slightly more covering. That's so cheap. Not only that, this wasn't something they got told up front. Like this isn't like, hey, we're doing this production. This is how it's going to be work. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. They were told weeks before rehearsal started. I'm sorry. You did months after they had been booked. Did you say $128? $128. Little freaking college kids make that at their Sunday church job every week. And you're Mm. telling me that the people who have to be naked on the stage at the Met for, of all operas, Tales of Hoffman is freaking like three and a half hours long. They only get, they were only being offered $128. You could make that in one day at a retail job, right? And here's the other thing. They've done this in the past, this particular production with this particular change. I think they, I think from what I'm reading that it's, it's always been like a thing where they would split the performances between ones with pasties and ones that were slightly more covered and they've never changed the pay before because of course how naked you are isn't, uh, isn't part of how you get paid. I'm shocked. It's not how this works. I'm shocked. I like, I feel like you should be paid a fixed reasonable price and if they decide that they also need you to be naked then you should get like a bonus yeah you shouldn't get your pay actually cut yeah like you should get extra pay for those nights but it shouldn't be like we're taking away from your set pay when you're not naked like that's not how that works yeah not only that there's as this article rightfully points out no matter what costume they're wearing the women's perform complex movements in four inch heels that follow opera music sung in french yeah pay your people met (laughs) oh my god what an absolute mess absolutely nutty like none of it makes sense the fact that there are two costumes for half and half of the performances the fact that they're paying people less for not being topless the fact that it doesn't even seem like the people get a choice on whether or not they're topless and getting paid less or more like it's the most insanely stupid way like what a you couldn't have chosen a stupider way to try to save money it doesn't even seem like they're gonna save that much money from that no not at all i'm shocked just such a kick in the face to women. Yeah, I. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I really, really enjoyed this month was all of the memes about <laughs> about the Mets trying to celebrate Women's Month, and it was like you're you're not celebrating Women's Month by doing an opera that has a woman in it. And it's like the little shocked monkey meme. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. So now we've got a couple of opera scandals that are specific to certain singers. One famous and one little less well-known, but boy, is it a story. So, Michelle, you want to take it away? So, let me just tell you guys. Okay, get comfortable. Whether you're on your morning commute or, like, sitting, doing around whatever it is you're doing. Like, let me let me just tell you a little story about this fancy lady. So, Ghana Walska, I hope I'm saying her name right. If I'm not, I'm so sorry. Was a Polish opera singer in the 1900s. And this little sexy lady could not make a career in opera to save her life. But same. She had one very valuable skill. And that was she was 100% confident in her skills in securing a rich man. Which (laughs) I have some questions for her. (laughs) But let me just tell you that. Ghana Walska was described as having the grace of a panther and the temper of a tiger. So you're classic prima donna, but she was also known for being very, very beautiful. She interested a multimillionaire 
she married a world famous scientist and then became the protege of another multimillionaire. So like stunning, gorgeous, knew how to secure a man. But let me just give you like a little a little highlight reel before we really get into it. So she married the richest bachelor on earth. She almost wrecked <laughs> the world's greatest opera company. She unwittingly boosted a rival prima donna into becoming its impresario and basically left in a tantrum off to Europe. And she was married six times. So we love a girl who can do it all. This is a level of chaos I do aspire to. Right? Like, I feel like if you're... Like, imagine having that much power. <laughs> well, after she's done with all of these, like, marrying all these multimillionaires, like, imagine just, like, leaving with all this power and money. No opera career. That's But, true. like, you're set for life. <laughs> but you almost wrecked an opera company. But I also kind of, like, love the idea that, like, if you weren't able to be able to have a career in opera that you would just mess it up so badly that you would be known for like not being able to make a career in opera like that's that's the byline to the rest of your life story her first marriage like is pretty insignificant she was married off at 17 super unhappy marriage they get divorced and she takes up opera so the multimillionaire who first took her on as his protege was harold mccormick and he was one of the like wait 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 like mccormick mccormick like the food company? I don't know. The food company who makes like everything? I think so. Be pretty sure I have like a bunch of seasonings and flavorings that are made by McCormick. I don't know. Google it real quick because I think it might be the same. And I'm going to assume that it's the same because he was the biggest patron of the Chicago Opera Company and he was married to Edith Rockefeller. So I'm probably going to assume that it's that McCormick. Yeah, it looks like they did. They a thousand percent are. Okay, awesome. So the guy that's on your spices and your spice cabinet plus Edith Rockefeller. Um, but yeah, one of the biggest patrons of the Chicago Opera Company at the time. And uh, he meets Ghana Walska and they hit it off. And I don't know exactly what it is that he's seeing in her potential, but he really tries to help her career with Chicago Opera Company. And uh, I can't remember. It's some really small role, but he was supposed to, she was supposed to sing some role with that company. And I don't think that rehearsals were really going well. So he takes her off on this like little European cruise for them to rehearse and on board. Cause you know, that's what you do. Like you just stop going to rehearsals and rehearse it on a cruise. Like, you know, as one does. Yeah, <laughs> but she goes off to Europe and on board, she comes across uh, the vi- like literally the richest bachelor on earth at the time, Alexander Smith Cochran, who because of course, r- because of, of course you randomly run into this man. She's surrounded with the richest people on earth because you've got McCormick, whose family owns like this huge business empire, who's married to a Rockefeller, right? Lord. And Cochran, who I've never heard of. But all right. (laughs) But he, okay, well, but here's the thing about Mr. Alexander is at the time he has an estimated $80 million fortune, which in today's money at that time, because we're talking like, I think this is around like 1920, maybe 1918. That's about $1.16 billion today. Like, can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine you're just freaking coasting with your like, super rich patron i guess and then you just like meet a billionaire on your european cruise while you're rehearsing an opera like there's no way that that's real (laughs) 
I was so shocked reading this story, but I digress. So they have a super quick and very passionate little ditty, like immediately. They're super in love. And they get married after only a couple weeks, which is shocking. But they do the European cruise. They get married in like a little American church in Paris, as one does. They come back. She returns to Chicago because she has this role with Chicago, right? But you know, that little European cruise really didn't serve her because she comes back. Rehearsals are a complete disaster. The conductor, the first conductor quit after basically pleading in vain for the prima donna to sing out. And, you know, our girl Walska really just did not have the type of voice that could cut over an orchestra. So that first conductor has to be replaced by a new conductor. And this new conductor silenced his musicians when she declared the orchestra drowned her voice. And, like, Walska at this point is just not having it. She has this as a complete meltdown. And I think she, like, denounces the opera company. She, like, insults all the musicians. And I think she, like, literally just throws a tantrum and goes back to Europe. So, back to Europe for Walska. In a rather quick turnaround, she divorces her billionaire husband. Why? Who knows? And then there's all these like little rumors going around because after she divorces her husband, McCormick is still kind of taking her on as a protege. And it turns out that after she they she divorces her billionaire husband, she is found staying in the same hotel as McCormick for like a long time. And people are like, hmm, what's Mm. going on there? Like, this girl can't sing, and she's super buddy-buddy with this, like, big music promoter, and, like, she's now divorced. Like, what's going on? They end up getting married not too long after, but the problem that's super yikes is McCormick has an estranged wife who was in Switzerland this whole time. And so, like, what's going on there? Who knows? But they get married, and he ends up promoting her career but like once again we return to the issue that our girl Walska cannot sing so let me just (laughs) does not fix the fact there is not enough money in the world to fix this problem no money in the world you can marry countless millionaires and even a billionaire and it will not help your voice I'm so sorry to to let her know all these years later but in one journal her voice was described as thin sharp wiry and metallic and they said that she is unskilled and insensitive Oof. in the arts and means of songs. Line, phrase, modulation, transition, and climax. With pace and rhythm, she... So ex- all of it. All, the whole thing. With pace and rhythm, <laughs> she exhibits neither intelligence, intuition, nor the fruits of study. <laughs> I'm sorry. If someone wrote all of those things about my voice publicly in a journal... In, in the news what would you do what would you do well not only that it, it's louisville so it's not you're getting that written about you in kentucky <laughs> and there's nothing worse than having someone from kentucky put you down like that <laughs> i can't uh, i can't with that i say that because i grew up near kentucky i and you know what they deserve it <laughs> but that's so depressing thin sharp wiry and metallic that's honestly the worst words. She exhibits neither intelligence nor intuition. That's how I feel when I start a new piece. <laughs> Truly, just. <laughs> I like how they literally. I'm, I'm telling you, if this came out about me, I would just like explode. 
I would never show my face again. I would simply become a hermit. Yeah. I would simply like just take the loss <laughs> and just be the wife to some millionaire and, and find something else to do because there's really no coming back after that. To be honest, I didn't find too much about her career after this point, which like honestly, same. But like her last husband just had literally nothing to do with anything but i just find this absolutely hilarious but her last husband was a yoga master 21 years younger than her and he was known as the white llama and that's it that's all you need to know that's it that's the entirety of the things you need to know about that i also want to briefly mention that the first actually i don't know if it was her first husband but one of the husbands that i didn't mention early on before mccormick he i want to say he passed away or he Something happened with him. Maybe he was killed. And she was left like four point something million dollars, like in today's money. It was like 300 and I don't know what amount it was back in the day. But like casually, she just had that in the bank from her early husbands before even <laughs> milling, meeting a billionaire. <laughs> like, wow. Honestly, I mean, at least at least she knew how to save her money. I, I kind of respect the hustle for their money. To be honest. I think I'm actually wrong. I don't think it's the Spice Company. I think it's an agricultural company. Maybe. It's hard to tell. They're both named McCormick. Regardless, I like to think of it as the Spice Man. Spice Man. (laughs) But regardless of that, it turns out that her opera career is actually an inspiration for part of the movie Citizen Kane. Yeah. Her failed opera career, rather. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Imagine every time somebody talked to you about, like, her failed opera career. Oof. Oh, incredible, though. Like, like what drive to take men's money and continue your career in spite of being terrible? Honestly, having to get married six times sounds like kind of the worst, too. Having to go through six weddings. (laughs) You know, something something tells me she enjoyed it. (laughs) That's true, you know. True, true. So the next time you're failing an audition... (laughs) Do a quick scan if there's any other billionaires in the room, okay? <laughs> yeah, you know. That's a takeaway to the story. I have another, uh, a little more well-known of an opera singer at the time. I have a, a, another little scandal that took place. Now, everyone knows Enrico Caruso. He's an incredibly famous tenor. I've never heard this story. <laughs> Uh-oh. But Enrico Caruso made news with his operatic debut in New York in 1903, but just three years later, he was back in the news internationally for an entirely different reason. Gosh. Enrico Caruso was accused of touching a woman at the zoo, which is weird for a lot of reasons. (laughs) Number one, why a zoo? Why a zoo? Also, very specifically in the monkey house, which is mentioned like 85 (laughs) times in the articles you read about this. They're very determined that you will know that it is while they were looking at monkeys. Awesome. But there's a lot actually to this. So Caruso, Caruso was arrested a week after the event. Okay. By an officer whose name is James J. Kane. As Kane testified later at the trial, he allegedly observed Caruso going up to a number of women in the monkey house. Sometimes he stood close behind them so that his legs touched theirs. How does that work? What position is that? How do you get... What? I'm sorry, If your what? legs are up against somebody, so is the rest of you. Okay. Not a fan right? in the slightest. Okay, but like, isn't it like a weird thing to say so that their legs touch? Your whole body is touching at that point. Yeah. Sometimes he touched women by reaching his hands out through slits cut in his coat's pocket. I'm sorry, what? Which is elaborate and strange. These premeditated 
cuts in his coats. Yeah, I have I have made my pockets useless for anything but molesting people. Love it. However, for reasons unknown, Kane did nothing to intervene until Caruso harassed a very specific woman, Miss Graham. The singer was arrested and quickly brought to trial. Thank so, you. there's a number of things happening in here. First of all, the descriptions are all very odd and uncomfortable. Second of all, this police officer just watched him harass women until he harassed one specific woman. And he was like, no, no, that's too far. <laughs> he could have just stopped it from the beginning. I'm so confused. <laughs> right? We're going to get into why that might be so confusing. So, they bring Caruso to trial and they are unable to produce Miss Graham. One of the women. Honestly, they don't produce any of the women that he supposedly harassed. Okay. The only person really with any information is this police officer, right? Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that there's actually very little evidence other than this one police officer's word, the judge does side with the prosecution and does fine Caruso $10, which works out to about $300, which it's the maximum fine for disorderly conduct and caruso throughout this whole thing maintains that he is innocent that he did not do it and uh, kept saying like i'm gonna appeal i'm gonna appeal this this is ridiculous he doesn't ever end up really appealing probably because he just realized he was gonna get more bad press because this was like i said this was international news at the time this was everywhere (laughs) however what you have to understand about new york at this time is that people did not like italians there was still very much racism against Italians at the time. Okay. And so a lot of people think that the entire story is fabricated, and which is why they couldn't produce any witnesses. As far as I know, they didn't even have his coat to show where these supposed slits were, and that he was he, they were essentially just targeting him because he was a very famous, very well-liked Italian in New York at the time. Interesting. Because there were, there were no women who came forward to talk about it. There was no one who... Like I said, it was just this singular police officer who supposedly stood by for, like, 45 minutes while Caruso touched people. This whole thing is weird. I mean, I don't... I to, Right? To me, though, I think, like, being a woman in this time, I wouldn't be shocked if none of these women wanted to come forward or didn't feel safe coming forward. But at the same time, it is kind of like... Um, well, the only thing that gets me about it is this Miss Graham. Her name was already attached to it. True. Yeah. I would, I, would, I would think that they would write, like, letters or maybe send somebody on their behalf to... Who knows? Yeah, I have no clue. I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying, like, this is an interesting story to me because there is also the reality that at the time, there, the police would have been targeting Italians. That's true. It's definitely not out of the realm And Caruso, once again, was very famous and very, very well-liked. So much so that literally, like... Five days later, after he paid his fine, after the verdict, he was back on stage at the Met. Yep. 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 What a weird and wild story. But also, I just can't go over the monkey house. (laughs) I know. Like, what is that? (laughs) In the monkey house. Aren't we all just in the monkey house some days? True. (laughs) Truly. Hopefully not touching people. (laughs) (laughs) Standing so close that their legs touch. It is just the worst description to me, and it bothers me on a visceral level. Because A, it's real gross. Second of all, once again, your whole body is touching at that point. I do not enjoy that in the slightest. I would rather be (laughs) the monkey behind the glass. (laughs) Next time I see you, I'm going to come up so close behind you that our legs are touching. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Well, on that horrible note, 
Um, let's talk about Steve Reich. That promise. Yeah. So next up, we have a couple of orchestral stories that will truly show the audacity that audiences have had in the past at premieres. And some of these are just so crazy. You know, on the 18th of January, 1973, New York classical concert goers are usually, you know, the pre- pretty, pretty casual group. You know, they're, they're pretty demure we go there, we go to the opera, we go to hear some some beautiful symphonic music, we go home, we're a little snooty, right? Not this audience. Reich's piece, he had he was premiering this four Hammond organs and maracas piece, which first of all I'm sorry, what? <laughs> a very Steve moment. Organs and maracas? I need to look this piece up <laughs> because I need to know what this sounds like. But that's what's happening. His four organs piece, which had been commissioned by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and specifically by their young conductor at the time, Michael Tilson Thomas. And here's the thing. I don't think that the problem with everything that goes down in the story is with the fact that it's four organs and maracas. I think the problem was that this conductor had no issue including this kind of, you know, avant-garde piece alongside Mozart. Bartok and List. And that's... Listen, I love a champion of new music. (laughs) Right? But they didn't. (laughs) Because people went insane. So the BSO was performing at Carnegie Hall. And the audience, their reactions ran the gamut from what one critic reported as lusty booze, which, first of all, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Well, Well, we'll cycle back to that. Lusty booze to yelled threats to someone running down the aisle of Carnegie Hall screaming, all right, I confess, to an old lady in the front row banging her shoe on the stage to to try and get the BSO to shut up. <laughs> okay, I love all of those. Can you imagine? But we should we should break those down real quick because, first of all, we have someone insinuating torture by yelling, all right, I confess. Right? <laughs> but I, I, we do need to go back to lusty booze. Yeah, I need to know what, what this is a lusty critic boo? was hearing and witnessing to then translate it in his review to lusty booze. I'm just assuming that the, the audience was in an uproar, but what a choice of words. I can't help it because I know they mean like passionate or like very loud. I, in my mind, I do hear someone just being like, boo. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Right. And I think like the thing that really gets me is the old lady banging her shoe on stage, which first of all, I just, I can't even think of anything like less classy than that. But more so, like, have you seen that old vine where it's the- where it's this lady, this old lady who's slamming on the glass of like a trolley and she's just like, oh, 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 oh. like that is exactly what I am imagining with this lady just getting her little kitten heel shoe and just banging it against the, the stage. Like, absolutely. If there's a time that I could be transported to, it would definitely be this concert. I would love to see this. But the funny thing is, you know. It seems like a, a, a bad time to be Steve Reich. But, you know, cut to 2011 and Carnegie Hall was mounting a landmark celebration of his 75th birthday, claiming him to be one of America's greatest living composers. So, you know, sometimes you take the loss, you take the, the old lady beating your stage with the shoe and you end up having a celebration in your honor. <laughs> Incredible. 
All right, Jesse. Well, you know, speaking of crazy audiences, let me just tell you a really short little tidbit about the premiere of Parade by our fave Eric Satie. So <laughs> really, the only thing of interest is the fact that this audience went absolutely wild. So so just a, a tidbit about this piece. Ever the offbeat and eccentric composer, Satie goes wild in this piece and his score utilizes super radical sound effects for the time period. There is typewriter clacking, there's gunshots, foghorns, sirens. Like, it's it's a wild piece, right? You can imagine people <laughs> in 1917, like, literally face-melting. Satie would have killed it in, like, the hip-hop rap game, though, with those samples. Oh, Satie was really ahead of his time, man. <laughs> Truly. They weren't ready for it in a ballet, though. <laughs> <laughs> they were not. This audience was not ready. And as you could imagine, and also it was a Paris premiere. And, you know, if you know anything about the Parisian audience in this time, it's that they like the things the way that they like it. And anything outside of that box is like the worst thing they've ever experienced. They do not know how to feel uncomfortable. So naturally. They created the term avant-garde, but they didn't really want to use it. No. Not at all. <laughs> So basically, this audience literally explodes. They booed. They hissed, which, <laughs> like, I just, I get really confused because whenever you read these types of articles about audiences freaking out, they always hiss. And I can't imagine something scarier. And But I also can't imagine what that right sounds like. Right up there like. with lusty boos. Right? I'm like, what? That's so spooky. But the real kicker, y'all, is they threw oranges at the orchestra so this begs the question did they get the oranges there is this a regular offering do people come prepared with oranges like I, i'm i'm sorry jesse are you are you saying that you don't go to orchestral <laughs> concerts prepared with oranges on hand in oranges. case you need to hiss and boo at the audience or at the audience at yourself at the orchestra <laughs> I just hand out the fruit to my own audience and I'm like, listen, if you hate it, just toss it. I'm sorry. Are you saying that you don't come just ready, armed and ready with oranges? Oh, my gosh. But can you imagine? Is it like, man, if I have this, so if I hate this show, I can toss it. But otherwise, I've got a delicious snack for for intermission. See, now what makes me laugh, though, is that this article makes it seem like a lot of people threw oranges, as in this was premeditated. <laughs> I would assume or they just knew they weren't gonna time, like it right in that time they just but like I love the the fact that they were all on the same page like apples no no bro oranges oranges for this sati performance like I love it everything about it although I I can you imagine you, know, kids? you have like <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of instruments and you just get freaking decked by an orange you know, i can't imagine <laughs> an orange a day keeps the modern composer away i can't even imagine but honestly i really would want to see this portrayed by like a key and peel skit <laughs> that's that's the energy that i'm getting from this performance Let's not forget, like, having your orchestra pelted with oranges, bad enough. But I think also the the review he got from his apparent friend uh, wasn't much better. Sir and dear friend, you are not only an arse, but an arse without music. 
and then he threw an orange. <laughs> Which does sound like something I would say to my friends as a joke, but vicious to write. Absolutely. Sati and the orchestra got wrecked in that concert in many different ways. Okay, but this is not even like... <sighs> These audiences had a level of disrespect I can't imagine. However, there are also orchestras with levels of disrespect I cannot imagine. Now listen, I know John Cage is not everyone's favorite composer. I get it. He's much more philosopher than composer in reality, and that's fine. It's not everyone's taste. But in 1964, John Cage... It is premiering his piece, Atlas Eclipticalis, and I hope I said that right, but they're doing an avant-garde season at the New York Philharmonic, which is going to be conducted by Leonard Bernstein. We love him. Adore. And most of the performances, like, people weren't too excited to see. You know, avant-garde seasons are hard. The audiences in New York really like the classics. They're they're very hard to please. But Cage was actually performing <laughs> this piece love it. with the orchestra. And not only that, the audience, of course, still had the audacity to boo and hiss, because as we've covered, apparently people hissed a lot. I need answers. <laughs> Just sitting in their seats going, <laughs> I hate that so much. <laughs> Imagine them all arching their backs like cats, too. <laughs> anyway. I'm a little snake. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I wasn't ready for the snake. A little snake, a snake. I hiss at the um. orchestras because I don't like new music. <laughs> is the audience like upset the orchestra wasn't even taking it seriously like so much so that people noticed (laughs) while cage is standing there not only are they working with leonard bernstein they're standing next to the composer and so they effectively even if the audience might have gotten a kick out of the thing they had no chance because the orchestra was purposefully sabotaging it they were staring bernstein in the eyes while botching it (laughs) I can't really imagine a situation in which Leonard Bernstein does not have absolute authority and control over his orchestra. So this is genuinely shocking. What kind of massive titanium balls do you have as a person whose career, as we've mentioned, like we are constantly on the precipice of disaster. And these people stood next to the composer, stared Leonard Bernstein in the eyes and were like, I'm going to have fun. (laughs) Not today. I see this music, but that's not what I'm playing. I can't imagine. I genuinely can't imagine. Poor Cage also. Literally. Yeah. Probably trying to keep everybody on track. I think Cage was probably used to this by now. (laughs) I hate to say that. Wow. If anything, they probably just made him more popular for having done that. Because we're reading about it now. True. Also, speaking of Bernstein and having complete control, one of my favorite videos is that... (laughs) It's so embarrassing. (laughs) Is Bernstein... You know, rehearsing West Side Story with Jose Carreras singing oh my Tony, gosh. and it's just not happening. They are making the recording, and like, I don't know how many of you have sung West Side Story, but it rhythmically, it is very tricky. And Bernstein knows it, and Bernstein is actually being quite generous with how kind he's being during that recording session, but you can feel Carreras, like, withdrawing into himself as he cannot get this rhythm correct it's crazy it's and the funny thing is like it's so tense at that point that if he had kind of just looked at bernstein who is literally mouthing the words on the correct beat to him he probably would have been better (laughs) honestly i can't watch that video for too long because it genuinely gives me the worst nervous stomach but like also 
It's nice to have reminders that uh, even the best of the best are are just people and have their off days. We all go through it. And get confused by rhythms. <laughs> but like, also just go watch videos of Leonard Bernstein like conducting. He is such like a joyous musician. Oh, he's having the most fun. And he's quite generous. Like he's actually among, among conductors I've even had. He seems very kind, <laughs> but being frank. Anyway, yeah, but the that Jose Carreras video, we'll put it up in the Discord for people to see, but it is <laughs> it will stress you. It really is so stressful. Oh goodness. Well, I would like to end our little story time with <laughs> an example of an audience going so bonkers that it they literally named the event. So <laughs> guess what? Arnold Schoenberg was conducting a concert in March of 1913, and the whole concert was held by the Vienna Concert Society in the Great Hall of the Musikverein in Vienna, and the concert pretty much consists of music by composers of the Second Viennese School. So you're like, okay, this can't go like horribly wrong. Like, yes, it is Schoenberg. Maybe people are going to have some feelings about it some which way, but man, oh man. So during this concert... The audience is so just shook to their core by the expressionism and experimentalism of the music that they truly begin rioting. So much so that the concert actually has to be ended prematurely. And with all of this craziness going on, the concert organizer was said to have slapped a concert goer (gasps) in the face. Just full on. Incredible. I'm imagining like full, like... 2000s movie level like bitch slap oh yeah like that's what i'm envisioning like something straight out of mean girls and this would eventually actually lead to a lawsuit against the the concert organizer so that doesn't surprise me right so this whole thing is known as the uh basically in german the scandal concert right scandal Uh concert Right. But after this slap of the century, people use an alternate name, which is Waschenkonzert from the Austrian German translation for slap concert. I love that. They literally called this the slap concert. A whole new meaning to this concert slaps. Right. Whole new meaning. <laughs> but my my last favorite little tidbit is that the operetta composer Oscar Strauss, who apparently witnessed this legendary slap testifies that the slap had been the most harmonious sound of the evening oh my god i can't these people were vicious these people are so vicious but what makes me laugh is that these audiences go truly berserk and then these composers or critics like just have to have the last line (laughs) i can't Uh, truly like but i've just like i've never come up with as sick a burn as like 1800s to 1900s musicians and critics like the the, the the absolute viciousness with which they do this is insane to me. They wake up. Not only do they wake up and choose violence, like they are on the prowl for blood. Like it just they're like a group of 13 year olds. They're just so brutally, brutally honest in the worst ways. Man, oh man. We wanted to keep this week a little bit light and easy, so I hope you enjoyed reading some old and new opera gossip with us. I always find these stories to be so funny, and I like to remind myself that even the best and (laughs) brightest of our field have uh, been through it. (laughs) 
truly been through it man these gossip episodes really just get me so hype listen just be happy that like likely no matter how bad you do on stage probably no one's gonna throw an orange or hiss at you (laughs) so true and i find that comforting so comforting that said i will be showing up to michelle's next concert oranges in hand (laughs) please just mid high note just deck me in the face Just bring I'm gonna a throw it at you right before the high note, and then you won't be stressed about the high note anymore. So true, because I'll be writhing in pain. <laughs> I'd love to see it. And I'm actually so excited. This week in Opera Offstage Reviews, we have a really sweet review. It says, Michelle and Jesse have such great rapport. There's so much joy that they both bring to the podcast. I love getting all of their insights in the musical academia and professional operatic arenas. As singers, there's an emphasis on singers' experiences, but they bring everyone who likes opera into the conversation. One of the best signs of an awesome podcast, I always feel more inspired to be an active participant in the opera world after every episode. Keep up the great work. And thank you so much. That is incredibly sweet. We both got very sappy when we received it and texted it to each other. (laughs) But we really, really appreciate those reviews. They are super helpful to us. And like I said, they make us cry. I'm so emotional right now. (laughs) It's literally so sweet. The sweetest review of my life. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you for writing in. And if you guys want to leave us a review, head over to the Apple Podcasts app. It helps lots of new spicy people listen to our podcast and makes us very happy. And also, while we're at it, If you guys haven't in a while, go check out our website. We have blog posts for your reading pleasure. We have helpful ebooks with many more to come. And if you check out our partners page, actually, we have discounts on awesome music-related goods and services from all of the cool organizations that we've partnered with. So save yourself some money and support local business. So you can check out our website at opera-offstage.com. And you can find us on pretty much all of the social media sites Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, at Opera Offstage. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and we will see you again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.